Jesus, in, in chapters 5 through 7, establishes himself as the greatest teacher that ever lived. And, and Jesus teaches, and, and at the end of chapter 7, the last verse says that Jesus, the people marveled because Jesus taught in such a way that was new to them. Jesus taught in such a way that, that was different, and they had never heard it before. And so it, it, was, it was revolutionary. He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. And then in chapter 8, begins now a, a series of eight recorded miracles where, where Matthew, the writer in this in the in the gospel of Matthew is um, teaching us that Jesus is first, that he's king and that he comes through the line of David to Abraham, that he's a child of Abraham and he establishes Jesus's pedigree and who he is and and then his baptism and then his teaching. And now we get into chapter eight through ten and it's another section of now the power of God. We've already established he's a wonderful teacher. And then he goes through and he does these eight miracles. And we started with the first three last week that were intentional miracles that Jesus did to touch the what? Do you guys remember? The outcasts of society, right? Who were the, who were the three that we studied last week that Jesus touched? A leper, the centurion soldier servant. Centurion soldier was a Roman occupier of Israel that the Jews hated, who, who was... In his own rights, a soldier who was 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 very accomplished and and being accomplished, I mean, he had to have killed so many people to become a centurion. And Jesus touches his servant, and the third category was a woman. All three in Jewish culture were were not exactly high up in in their social structure, and so Jesus makes it a point to touch the outcasts. And then we pick up today with the, the, the two more miracles that Jesus does. But what's interesting in these eight miracles, chapter 8 through 10 in this next section, twice in the middle of these eight miracles recorded, Jesus pauses and he says something to you and to me through this section that's intentional. And he says two most powerful, important words I want you guys to catch today because it is the heart of what I want to share with you today. In the message, Jesus says, follow me. Look at your neighbor and say, follow me. Not really though, right? Follow Jesus. All right. So, um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. All right. Somebody say, amen. All right. I'm saying that to keep you guys awake. Here we go. So listen, if, if, if I start in verse 18, I'm going to be in chapter eight next week. So I don't want to be in chapter eight next week. I want to be in chapter nine next week. So let's start in verse 23. We're going to catch these last two miracles quickly. And then we're going to go back to 18. And we're really going to study the follow me part, um, which is the heart of what I want to share with you guys today in a, in a message that I'm titling the cost of discipleship. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys what that cost is in verse 23. You guys with me? Hey, if you don't have a Bible today, I told you about Version Bible. Um, also, we have Bibles here that we can loan you. We want everyone to have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you. Jordan is going to uh, take a couple and walk around for a minute. If anybody needs a Bible, just raise your hand briefly. Jordan will hand you a Bible. I want you to, if you can, follow with me. Um, and if you're new to the Bible, it's maybe a little more difficult to find the passages as I call them out. But um, I'll sometimes try to wait for you and... Um, we're going to be in a couple of places today. They're easy New Testament stuff. It'll be easy to find. But I'd like for you to kind of keep a finger in one place, keep a bookmark in one. I, I would really, because um, I think it will help you if you read along with me as we study through these things. And so I want you guys flipping with me today. Amen. All right. Verse number 23 of chapter 8 of Matthew says, Now when he got into a boat, he, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that... The boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Somebody say asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. And he said to them, why are you fearful? O you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And so the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So Jesus, in verse 18, said, And when Jesus saw the great multitude, he gave a commandment to depart to the other side. In the other gospel, in the same story, um, Luke records for us that Jesus said, Let us go over. So Jesus tells the disciples to let us go over, and they enter into a boat. Now, if you're coming to Israel with us, you'll get to see the Sea of Galilee. What's interesting about this storm that was on the Sea of Galilee, you, you're there and it's, it's hard to believe really. It's hard to see it because the Sea of Galilee is three miles wide and eight miles long. 
There's, there's many places where you stand on one side, you can see the other side. Um, but it's, it's below sea level with mountain ranges all around it. And with certain conditions, the, the winds come down in the mountains and they create a very tempestuous sea in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And we're not talking about huge fishing vessels. We're talking about 2,000 years ago, the fishermen making boats. One of the things that we do when we're in Israel is we go to a museum where they've, um, there was a boat that was buried in the mud and preserved, and it dates to the first century. Now, whether it's the boat that Jesus and the, and the um, disciples actually used or not, it's definitely something from that time period and probably very reminiscent of a family boat that Peter and his family would have owned to fish on the Sea of Galilee. And it's humble. It's not very big. It's not like what you'd expect where Jesus went in and he went down below and, you know, shut his door and laid on his cot and went to sleep. Nothing like that. I mean, it's a boat, one deck and, you know, a bunch of guys on it and fishing nets. And, you know, it'd be like be like duck hunting with Brian Smith, you know, that kind of boat, you know. And so he Jesus gets on the boat and he falls asleep and the winds and the waves begin to um, to to blow the boat around. Now, the first thing to realize is that. The, the disciples were in the middle of a storm. Was it, was it a mistake? Was it an oops moment that they ended up in the middle of this storm? Right? Didn't Jesus command them to get in the boat and tell them to go to the other side? So here we find the disciples directly in the center of God's will in the middle of a storm. And, and so for you and I, sometimes we're going to face storms in our life. And what do we do when we face a storm? What do we do when you face something difficult in your life that feels like you're going to die like the disciples did? Most of you, I know you guys well. You stand out and you say, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for this terrible storm in my life. I know that you're doing something. I know you got this. We don't like the disciples, right? We, we freak out a little bit and we say, what's going on? And what did I do? Is there sin in my life? Am I outside of God's will because I'm in a storm? And yet, like the disciples, they, they're right in the middle, exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. And they're in the middle of a storm. And Jesus is teaching something. Jesus is allowing something. And so Jesus stands up and, and poor disciples, man, what, is it, what does it say that Jesus said to them? When Jesus, he said, why are you fearful? Oh, you have little faith. And you're like, oh, oh, man. Like they just heard Jesus talk about somebody they didn't like, a Gentile centurion soldier and Jesus looked at that guy and said, in, in admiration almost, oh, I marvel at your faith. You have such great faith. I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And you know, Peter, right? Peter's probably going, oh, just wait. Give me a minute. I'll show you great faith. You're talking to a centurion soldier. Well, what about me, Jesus? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove him. You know, he's telling John and John and the guys are talking and they're like, well, he, he saw great faith in that guy. Come on, man. We got to do better. We got to prove him. And now Jesus stands up and he says, you of little faith. They're like, oh, man, this is going the wrong way. I don't think I'd want to hear Jesus say that. But they so they they the, the point, right, that he had they had little faith was because Jesus said, let's go over. And that Jesus wanted them to trust him. He wanted them to know that they were going to make it to the other side. And so Jesus stands up and he's tired of listening to them. And he's probably he's probably just tired, period, because he was sleeping. And, and, and yeah, Jesus slept and he probably wanted to go back to sleep. He liked to eat and sleep. Cool thing about Jesus, right? You know, we can identify with that. And, and, and so Jesus stands up and, and the other gospel records that he says, be still. You know, I always imagine Jesus at this moment, who knows what he really did. But I always imagine Jesus at this moment standing on the boat and raising his hands. And this thing's just going crazy. And he just says, be still. And all of a sudden the, the, the rain stops and the ocean settles down and the clouds dissipate as he lowers his hand and everything's calm. And then he goes and gets back in bed. In the, in the, um, I tried this one time in the desert, it, it never rains in the desert. Like it, it, you know, it's sunny 363 and a half days a year in the desert, in the high desert where I came from. And there's no grass there. Like it's people trip out, you know, like I didn't own a lawnmower. I didn't mow a lawn for 15 years. I don't know what a lawnmower was. I had, we have this thing in, in the desert. It's called a hula ho. And it's a, it's a, it's a broomstick with a square little metal piece on the end. That's how you mow your grass. You go out and knock your weeds down in the front. And then the really nice lawns in, in, in my neighborhood, you get a rake and you make lines in your, in your dirt and then you spray it with water. So the lines stay, that's, that's what the grass, that's what everything looks like. So, and the ground is really, really hard because there's no moisture. There's not a lot, no rain. And so when it does rain really hard, we get flash floods because the water won't soak into the soil. It doesn't go anywhere. It just, it just sits on top and it, and it, and it floods. And so we are having 
the absolute hundred-year storm. We're having an El Nino, Nino deluge, and the church is flooding, literally. The, the Part of the sanctuary, and it's a 40-acre campus, and there's different levels and different buildings all over the place, and 100,000 feet under roof. And in the sanctuary, the old sanctuary building, the back corner door is flooding and water is rising and beginning to come in the door. And we're trying to build sandbags and, and you know, we're in water in places up to our, our, our knees and certain buildings are starting to flood. And I mean, it is non, it hasn't stopped coming down yet. And so finally, I'm, I'm tired of moving sandbags. So I walk outside and just walking in it, you're soaking wet immediately because it's coming down so hard. And I raise my hands. I look around to make sure people are watching me. <laughs> Be still. It just kept raining. I was <laughs> like, oh, man, it didn't work. But I thought, how cool would that be to, to, to try that? But I was like trying to muster all the faith I could get. Come on, faith. Come on, faith. Be still. No, it's not going to work. So, but Jesus, he does it and they marvel. And, and I mean, who wouldn't, right? They see again a demonstration of Jesus's power in verse 27. So the men marveled saying, who then, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he had come to the other side, he was on his way somewhere. So when they got there to the country of the Gadareans, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus? When it says they in verse 29, who's it talking about? They cried out. The demons basically through these men. What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? They recognize who he is in the, in the spirit. Have you come here to torment us before the time? So the, what did they mean? What did these demons mean? Um, it doesn't record in Matthew's gospel, but again, in the parallel gospels. In Luke's gospel, we get some more detail on the same story. And, and the demons say, um, Jesus said to them, who are you? Or what is your name? And what did they say? Legion, for we are many. And, and then, um, so they identify themselves as a legion. And a legion is like 5,000. 5,000 demons. What's, that, what's interesting, though, too, is in that, in that recorded in, in uh, Luke's gospel, it just mentions the one naked guy. In uh, Matthew's gospel, we get another detail of the story that there was two guys. Jesus is talking to these demons, and they ask him permission to not go to um, torment before it's time. So listen quickly. What they understand is that they're going to eventually go to torment. There's going to come a time in history and place where these demons are going to end up in torment for all of eternity. And they're asking Jesus, amen, somebody got it. They're, they're asking Jesus not to send them there before it's time. Now, real quick, just again, and I'm not teaching demonology today. We got another uh, fish to fry today. But um, if you want, write these two things down. You can turn there with me if you want really quickly. It's easy to find. Last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Revelation chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. In the fifth bowl judgment, it says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I heard a star fall from heaven to the earth. To him was given the keys to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because the smoke of the pit. So when, when he opened the keys to the, to the bottomless pit... So it was so large and so much of the smoke and sulfur rose up that it darkened the sun and blackened the air. And it says, then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as scorpions of the earth. Um, so demons come out of this abyss and this is where they're being kept. So there, there's a verse in the Bible. And then the other one is, in, is, is Revelation chapter 20 in verse one. And, um, it says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And that's where he's going to lay a hold of the Satan and his henchmen and, and chain him up for a thousand years. In this bottomless pit, in Genesis chapter 6, when God floods the earth, the Benaiah Elohim or the sons of men or these demons that were plaguing the earth in Genesis chapter 6 that crossed the boundaries that God had laid out for them, he put them into this abuso. He put them into this, this holding tank that the Bible talks about that one day in Revelation, in chapter number 9, an angel is going to be given a keys to it and it's going to open up. So when these guys say, do not torment us or send us into the abyss before it's time, eventually they're going to end up where the rest of those demons are and Satan. But they're saying for right now, don't send us there. A little theology real quick. And then in verse 30, it says, 
Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And he said, Go. So they had come out and went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So this area of the Gadareans is a place on the Sea of Galilee that um, we visited last time, and we'll visit it again. And it's, it's unmistakable because there's really only one place on the Sea of Galilee, and especially in this area, we know it was the area of the Gadareans, where there's a steep slope that goes right off into the water. Um, and so the pigs ran down this area into the water. So this particular area would have been a Gentile area. So, so you know, I've heard people teach this and say, what were the Jews doing raising pigs? And um, pigs were not kosher, right? We know that, that they didn't eat. Um, bacon and pork and poor Jews in the Old Testament, you know, Jesus liberated bacon and we're so thankful for that. And every time I mention it, I got to say it and just get excited that, that, that Jesus okays bacon. So, but there was a reason why in the law of Moses, they were not allowed to eat bacon. And we know today, right, that if you don't cook it right, it'll make you very sick and there's health reasons and, um, you know, lots of reasons for that. But I, I don't think that, that these were Jews and Jesus is punishing them by killing their pigs. The, the, in this area, not far from this area where, where this is, we'll go to a place called Teldan. And that's the headwaters of the Jordan River. That's where Jesus, uh, Peter gave his, his famous profession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Talking about Jesus' confession, uh, Peter's confession. And in that place is all these um, pagan temples in, in the times of Jesus. And, and with all those pagan temples, there would have been a heavy Gentile population. It's very possible that many of those Gentiles lived in this area of the Gadareans where they were raising these pigs. And so Jesus commands these demons, allows these demons, they ask permission to go into the herd and they go into the herd and the herd runs violently down the hill and commits suicide. The first case of deviled ham. What else was it? No, the some kind of eggs, deviled eggs. That's chickens, huh? All right, so I, I, I don't want to spend too much more time on that. We got to uh, get to what the heart of what we want to share with you guys today. So turn with back a, a, a verse. I purposely left out verse number 34, you guys, of chapter 8. We're going to close with the last verse in, the, in, the, in it. But I want to look at verse number 18. So we're in Matthew 8, 18. I'd like for you guys to read with me, everybody, the title above Matthew 8, 18. What does it say there in God's word? You guys said different things. What I was looking for was above verse 18 should say the cost of. Oh, some versions say following Jesus. Mine says the cost of discipleship, right? So some will say the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, the same thing. So, um. So everybody say, let's, let's go with mine because mine's better. Say, um, the cost of discipleship. Say that with me. Cost of discipleship. So what does it cost for you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is what I want to share with you guys today. And I want to encourage you guys, listen. Um, I hope you guys know that I, I, I seriously love you. I really do. I really care for you. And that, that's, that's being sincere. Like, I, I, at least hopefully my life is enough of a testimony of what I've been called to do by God, but what I've chosen to do to live my life in such a way that I, I want to be here for you. I want to pour into you. My life is to see people who are far from Jesus come close to Jesus. And I would never want to do anything to harm that. And one of the things I'd be scared to death of was doing anything that would prevent people from coming to Jesus Christ. Because what I tell from what I can see in the word of God is that the couple times where Jesus really gets mad at people, he's mad at people that are keeping other people from coming to him. That pisses Jesus off. Is that bad? Cause I just said that. Yes. Right. Okay. Now I made you mad. So we're on the right track. So Jesus gets angry when other people, so again, I don't ever want to be guilty of that. So what I want to share with you today is what I, I don't have a good word for it. So I just call it heavy. Okay. It's kind of heavy. I remember a couple of weeks ago we had to share a message and I shared the same thing with you guys, but I want to tell you this morning, what, what I want to ask you to do with me this morning in this next little venture for the next 25 minutes is I would like for you guys just to walk through a couple scriptures with me. I want you to read them for yourselves. I want you to make a decision. I'm not preaching at you. 
We're walking through it together, you and I. We're going to walk through this together. I'm not accusing anybody, but I am going to ask a heavy question. I, I really want you to look in the mirror today. That's, that's the vision of, of, of what I'm asking. I'm asking that you would take the words of Jesus, the words in red, very literally, and apply them to your life. I'm hoping also in that to really encourage you in, in just wisdom of counting the cost because that's that's really the the lesson of what is the cost of discipleship and what jesus is teaching here and what's going to happen is jesus is going to say some things that would seem rude jesus is going to say some things that on the onset would seem offensive to people and and, and because you know our churches and and our pastors and our leaders we don't want to offend people and i don't want to offend anybody needlessly But I also don't want to not just teach what Jesus taught because what Jesus taught will help you. It will bless you. There is a real beauty in it in the end. And hopefully I don't run out of time before I get to the good part because it's the heavy part in the beginning. And then I get to the beautiful part. So hopefully we make it there. If not, you'll have to come back next week. But then I'll be in chapter nine. So we'll never get it. So we're going to have to we're going to have to make sure we get it. Let's look at let's start first with. Luke 14. So in Luke 14 is a parallel account of where we are in in Matthew. And in Luke 14, it says, and now great multitudes, Luke 14, verse 25, 1425, Luke, it says, now great multitudes, everybody say great multitudes, went with him and he turned and said to them. So listen, there, there was great crowds of people that were following Jesus. Now, he had his disciples, his 12 guys. Let me tell you something about Jesus' 12 disciples in the area of discipleship and of cost. Jesus comes to these 12 guys and recorded of every one of them, they immediately, the word immediately is used, immediately they left everything to follow Jesus. Peter was a guy who was a generational um, fisherman, which means his dad owned a family business that he inherited from his dad, that he inherited from his dad on the Sea of Galilee as fishermen. Peter was being raised and trained up in his family business to take over the family business one day, and his father being the patriarch and Peter being raised up generationally in it. Lydia's dad um, comes from a very similar um, upbringing. Lydia's great-grandfather... Um, was uh, came and he homesteaded a section of land, an area in central Kansas, and, beca- and, and started a wheat farm. And then, and then he passed it on to his son, and, and Lydia's grandfather owned and operated the family farm, and her dad was, was growing up and was, was being raised and groomed to take over the family farm. It was just, just not a question. It wasn't talked about. It was just assumed it was just the way life is. That, that her dad, the next son, that, that he would come and, and take over the family farm. One problem was when, when he was 20 years old, God called him into full-time ministry. And he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I'm leaving the family farm to go to Bible college. And it was devastating. And his dad disowned him and his dad hated him. And his dad literally took him out of the will. And he had a six-month obligation that he said he was going to keep to his father before he left for Bible college. And for six months, he worked every day under his, his, his father's rule on the family farm. And every day for six months, Lydia's grandpa told her dad how much he hated him and wished he was never born and literally took him out of the will. And, and, and so Peter is in that kind of um, situation And it says that he immediately gets up and he leaves all that and he begins to follow Jesus. At what cost? Everything. What does it say of James and John when Jesus called them to follow him? They were doing something. Who knows? Trivia 101. Lots of trivia here, right? What were they doing when Jesus came and called them? Somebody besides Lydia, give me the answer, please. They were mending their nets. Okay, the Bible says they were mending their nets. And as they were mending their nets, it says that Jesus said, come and follow me. And it says that they dropped their nets. Literally, they left their nets in the middle of the job. Same situation as Peter for these two young men. And they went and followed Jesus. So these guys are disciples who left everything to go follow Jesus. So, so as Jesus is teaching, he's drawing these great crowds, these huge multitudes of people. 
Now, Jesus, no doubt, right? We just saw these amazing things. He healed a woman. He healed a crowd. It says they brought all to him who were sick and he was healing them. He, he tells the sea to calm down. He casts demons into pigs and they run down the side of the mountain and the dead pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee now. People are hearing what's going on. They show up and Jesus reaches in a bag and there's 5,000 men, not counting the women of children. And there's a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And Jesus reaches in and he starts serving the people and it never runs out. And he, and he multiplies these fish and these loaves to feed this crowd. The people are excited. They're seeing all of these things. They're coming back the next day and, and they, they're following. And, and the next day in John chapter six, they come back and they say, Jesus, dance for us. Show us some more miracles. Do some more signs. Can you do that thing with the sea again? That was pretty cool. How about, how about casting some more pigs into, into the swine? And so this is the group that Jesus is addressing, this multitude. And, and he's going to tell them, he's going to teach them something that he wants them to count the cost because he knows he wants them to follow him. He wants them to become disciples. He wants them to have relationship with him, but he knows that if they're following him for the wrong reasons, or if they come for, for easy grace and easy believism, that they're, they're not going, when the storm comes, when the rains come, when the trials come in this Christian life, they're going to struggle. Now, now in church, we, we have um, some terms I want to I, I wanna, um, uh, address for you guys today. So we say, um, a term we use sometimes, Lydia's dad says sloppy agape. Um, the, the old school said cheap grace. That's what Luther and those guys said. Okay, we say today, the one term I use oftentimes is easy believism. You heard me say that before? So what do I mean by cheap grace, easy believism, sloppy agape? These are terms that, um, that, that I, I will define for you in a second, but let me set it up with this. For a thousand years, 1500 years maybe, in the world, um, liturgical church, not just the Catholic church, but basically the rule of the Catholic church, um, ruled for, for a thousand years, 500 to 1500. They chained the Bible to the pulpit and it was only in Latin and the common people didn't read Latin. If you were caught with a copy of the Bible, the, the punishment was death. It was, it was only believed, it was believed that only the, the priests had the right to read and understand the Bible, and then they would dictate it to the people. They, they had doctrines that were, that were going around the world that you could buy indulgences, which meant you wanted to party up this weekend, you got a trip to Vegas with your family, you just stop by church on your way, and you, you write a check for, for your sins. So if you want to stop by this place, you write a check for this amount, and you want to do this while you're there, and you, you buy sins or indulgences, and you pay the church. You could give them land. Or you would come in after your sins, and you would pay to have them forgiven. You would, you would confess all your sins to the, um, to the priest, right? And, and, and they would know so much, but no word of God. No bad doctrine. Immaculate conception. Mary was a perpetual virgin. Peter was not married. Peter was the first pope. All these things that came out. Well, there's a guy in history about the 1500s. His name was, anybody know? Martin Luther. And Martin Luther started what we call the Protestant Reformation. And what happened was Martin Luther got a hold of the Bible and he began to read and study the word of God. And he came to a place in Romans where it said the just shall live by faith and, and everything in his life changed. And he wrote a thing called the 90, I always mess it up. One, three, not nine. No, three or one. Let's call it three. 93 thesis. And he nailed it to the doors. And, and it was the 93 things that he found in the Bible that, that the church was doing that were unscriptural and not according to the word. And then in the process, they broke away and the Protestant Reformation began. And, and it began the age of grace. And now, now we're saved by grace. And, and we, we, we relate to God by grace. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Protestant Reformation was born. And they came a long way from the liturgical and the, the rote, uh, which became, you know, more like the Phariseeism that, that Martin Luther came out of to where we are today. Now, the church has had ebbs and flows over the years of this, this grace movement. Now, if we take grace too far, now we get into this point of Sloppy agape. Amen? Everybody say cheap grace. So what is cheap grace? This is what cheap grace is. Cheap grace says to you that the grace of God is so powerful and the work of Jesus Christ is, is so thorough 
that it covers every part of your life. And it's not necessary to follow Christ just to enjoy the grace that God has bestowed upon us. So in other words, you could ask Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. You come forward at a Greg Laurie crusade. Thousands will come forward tonight in Dallas. Thousands around the world um, will make decisions for Jesus Christ. You ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And you say, Jesus, come in my heart and forgive me of my sins. And watch me, you know, and you, you say that prayer. And then you, 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 you're born again, you're saved. The Spirit of God comes in your life. And then you go live any way you want for the rest of your life. I asked Jesus in my heart at VBS at Tooele Springs in, you know, sixth grade. And, and so now I just live however I want because the grace of God covers me. Sloppy agape. Cheap grace. No, no discipleship, no counting the cost, no, no realization that, you know, and, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous if you think or if you believe that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ because you come to church. Because you come to church, are you going to heaven? Because you come to church, are you a disciple of Jesus? No. If, if you go stand in your, in your garage, does that make you a car? Nope. And, and, and so there's a cost. And listen, Jesus is going to identify for some people that cost. So let's look at it um, in verse. Where are we at? Luke 14, right? Luke 14, it says um, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life. Also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what if you guys came to church? Now, let's say, OK, you are here. You came to church this morning and I got up here and I said, you can't come to church here unless you hate your sister and your brother and your mother. And yeah, that's right. You got to hate yourself, too, if you want to be my disciple. The church would empty out, right? You guys are going to find another church. And Jesus draws this big crowd. And I don't think he said it like that. But he's yelling at them and he's telling them, he's telling them something. He said, you got to hate your mother. You got to hate your brother. You got to hate your sister. Yeah, that's right. You got to hate yourself. Am I making this up, you guys? I asked you to turn with me, right? You're reading the same thing I'm reading, right? He says, you got to hate your own life if you want to be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he can't be my disciple either. I'm not done. You got to hate and you got to pick up your cross and follow me. Now, listen, we, we understand what Jesus says when today when he says, take up the cross. But do you realize Jesus, when he says this to a crowd, he hadn't died on a cross yet. They have no concept of Jesus going to die on a cross. We lose this, right? Because we're 2,000 years later and we remember clearly how Jesus dies. They don't know that yet. The, the disciples still believe, still were waiting. John the Baptist, after this point, is going to send a message to Jesus and say, are you the one or shall we be waiting for another? He knew Jesus was the one. He was basically saying, come on, get on with it, man. Overthrow the Roman government. They had no concept of Jesus dying on a cross. This would be like Jesus telling this crowd today, if you don't take up your electric chair and follow me, a form of capital punishment, if you don't take up your noose, if you don't take up your lethal, if you don't take your lethal injection and follow me. So this radical um, idea of dying to yourself, if you want to be Jesus's disciple. And then he gives us the, um, verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish it. All who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake, verse 33, verse 33, chapter 14, whoever does not forsake, blank. One more time, we're going to get it. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake, that he has, that he cannot be my disciple. What is the cost of being Jesus' disciple? Do we need to read it again? All. We're going to try it again. We're not quite catching here today. We're not tracking today. Verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake that he cannot be my disciple. What's the cost of being Jesus' disciple? All. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't count the cost, you're going to, you're, you're, 
you're going you're gonna to be miserable. So the wise person doesn't just, you know, you count the cost of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. And what is the cost? He tells you the cost is all. So let's say, let's, let's try to, you know, he used a house and a war, but maybe we can understand it in today's terms. So let's, the most expensive car that you could buy is, is anybody know what that is? It's a Bugatti. Okay, the Bugatti um, costs anywhere from 1.6 to 2.7 million. If you want to buy um, the, the, the base model, the Veyron, it's 1.7. The Chiron is 2.6, Chiron, I don't know how you pronounce it, 2.6. And that's just a base model. But you don't go into deal, dealership to buy a Bugatti because every car is made individually for the buyer. So all you do is you go in and you pick it out and you order it. And then you have two special uh, manufacturers, because it's not made on a production line, two engineers specially make your car specific to your design in France. So to, to go in and design your car, let's say that you decide you're going to buy a Bugatti. And you save your, your lunch money and you don't eat at McDonald's for like three years. You have a garage sale and you sell everything you can sell in your house and you save $450,000, which is the down payment to have the meeting to order your Bugatti. So you go in with your four hundred and fifty, and you, you place the order. Now, the thing about, about the Bugatti is the, um, the, the oil change on a Bugatti is $20,000. I'm not making this up, you guys. This, this is serious. You go read it. Because you have to tear the engine down. You have to take it to a Bugatti dealership. 20 grand just to change the oil. The tires, $10,000 a piece when they wear out. $40,000 to change the tire. And every couple times you change the tires, the rims have to be replaced at $40,000 for the rims. The leather in a Bugatti is, is made from cows that are raised at a high altitude, higher than mosquitoes and bumblebees so they won't get stung so that the hide is perfect. Well, that type of leather, it has to be maintained and treated. And so $10,000 a year to maintain the leather in a Bugatti. You can plan on a couple hundred thousand dollars, more than your house probably costs, just to maintain your car. So if they call you in a month or two months, whenever it is, and they say, okay, your car's ready, but we need $40,000 because it's in France and that's what we're going to cost you to ship it to you. So now you've got to pay the forty grand to have it shipped. Now listen, if you, if you need to get an auto loan to buy this car... <laughs> you can't afford it, right? But let's just say for the illustration that you, you borrowed $2 million from somebody and your payments are 40000 a month. Now, if you didn't count the cost when they, and, and you managed to somehow get that car delivered to your house, you're going to be miserable. Why? Because you didn't count the cost and you find out there's all these expenses and bills and, and then you take it down to Jiffy Lube and you're thinking $69.99, it changed my oil. And then he hands you a bill for 20 grand. Then you got to change the tires and you're looking at Costco for a, you know, discount tire change and you get a bill for 40 grand for four tires. So, you know, that, that's just, that's what Jesus is saying. Like you're, you're foolish if you don't first count the cost, um, in, in what it is. So, and then in 33, the cost is what? So your down payment on becoming a disciple of Christ, listen, listen to me, is your old life. Who you were before you came to Christ. You know, we do, we do baptisms here. And in the baptisms, I, I tell you, you have to answer yes to two questions. We just did a baptism last Sunday night. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? First question. Second question, have you asked him in your heart to be your Lord and Savior? I've been studying this week and I'm thinking, man, I need to add a third question. Do, have, do, you, do you understand... That, that you're giving your life to follow Christ. Do you understand that your baptism includes your life to follow Christ? Because again, Jesus is not mad at people, but Jesus is giving them a, a, a very sincere, very stern talk because he loves them, that there's a cost in discipleship and we're fooling ourselves that, that if we don't first consider that cost. Let, let's look at another example because there's a couple. I, I'm not done beating you up before I try to encourage you. Hey, look at me. Look, let's look at a story in Matthew chapter 19. Just turn a couple pages to Matthew 19. And, and then we see this um, story in verse 23 of this, this rich young ruler. And it says, then Jesus said, 
Oh, I'm sorry, we're going to get to that in a minute. We'll get to that. But I'm going to check the conclusion first. Verse 23 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? You know the concept of the Sermon on the Mount? You should know because we just went through and studied it. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus creates this life that's so impossible to follow that you say, man, nobody can do that. And then Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's the whole point. You need a Savior. You need the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus. Well, in the same vein, you know, the disciples are like, well, then who can get saved? And, and, and nobody on their own. And then Jesus um, said in verse 26, looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And now Peter, who's starting to get it, he said to him, see, we have left. Verse 27 says what? We have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, I like Peter. Peter gets it. Listen, this is what Peter gets. Like he's understanding that the cost of discipleship is what he's already done. He knows he's in a good place. He knows he's born again. He knows he's walking with the Lord. He left all and he's like, oh man, this is good stuff. Like, well, we've done that. We left all to follow you. Now, what do we get? What's the reward? That's what he says. Now, what's ours? He says, show me the money, Jesus. And listen, Jesus gives him He's going he's gonna to encourage him. I, li- I like the way it's recorded in another gospel a little better. because, But Jesus said in verse 28, I say to you that in the, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold. And the other version says in this life and inherit eternal life. Somebody say amen. So Jesus promises for Christ followers that you will inherit a huge blessing in this life. And the other, the other version adds those words to it. Now, it says it here, but it adds that little extra emphasis in this life and in the next. And eternal life to follow. So that, that's, that's God's promise that, that you're going to inherit eternal life. Now, before we get to the beauty of it. Look with me at verse 16 now. Let's look at another case. Same chapter, verse 19. And it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may may inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? So we have this story of the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he wants to have, listen, an intellectual conversation. He wants to eat his cake and have it too. He, he wants to go to heaven, but not pay the price. He wants easy believism. This is what he's asking for. He's asking for a cheap grace. He's asking for something that he can do that will help him get what he wants, what you and I all want. We want to go to heaven. We don't want to go to hell for eternity. We don't want to miss. We, we want all the blessings in the Bible that Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will provide all your needs in Christ Jesus. And he wants all those things, but he doesn't really want to pay the price for it. So he comes and you notice he doesn't call him master or Lord. He says, oh, good teacher. Now, now immediately Jesus is going to address this issue of his heart. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? He didn't let it go. He, he challenged him because Jesus knew in love that, that there, was, there was a problem with this guy's heart. And so um, the guy says, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but God. So he he points him to God. And then he said to him in verse uh, or in verse 17. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, which ones? Come on. He knew which ones. Like, what is he saying? Like, oh, which ones? Oh, what if I keep those? But that means I can get away with these. If, if I follow these commandments and then I go indulge in those other ones, will I be all right? What, what does he mean by which ones? At this point, the rich young ruler, he's really struggling in the cost of discipleship. 
He's really, he's really struggling in the ability to follow Jesus and pay what the cost is that Jesus said. The cost is all. The down payment is your old life. And, and, and your monthly payments is the rest of your life. If you want that Bugatti. And, and so he, he doesn't want to make either one of those payments. And he says, which ones? So Jesus indulges him and says, oh, you shall not commit dirt, murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I lack still? And the guy said, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I got all those. I didn't kill nobody. I didn't do any of those stuff. I'm good then, right, Jesus? And he said, well, is there anything else I need to know? And Jesus said to him, just ask Jesus in your heart and believe and go live however you want. Is that what Jesus said? Go and sleep with whoever you want to sleep with outside of marriage. Go and party all you want. Go and live your life like hell. Have no filter on your life. No relationship with God through prayer and reading the word and devotion and, and, and real commitment to walking with Jesus in your life. Don't worry about the sins. Don't deal with the sins in your life. Just believe in me and you're going to be fine. Is that what Jesus told him? You know what? You know what's interesting, you guys? There's a little bit of a dichotomy because, you know, I preach this often and I don't want to get it twisted. And I don't want to mess it up. But I always tell you that the gospel is not... Do, do, do. It's what? Done, done, done. That it's what Jesus did for you. It's, it's already done. It's not do. But interestingly enough here, Jesus tells this rich young ruler not to believe, but to go and do something. There is some do in, in the life. That, that, but there's a beauty. There's a beauty coming. So don't get too discouraged yet. Listen, Jesus says, go and do something. He expects, and he tells this guy, go sell everything you own and come. I want you guys to look at it with me. I'm in Matthew 19, and I'm looking at verse 21, and he says, and come, the very bottom of verse 21, and come, follow me. You know, I say often, you know who goes to heaven? Good people don't go to heaven. People that follow Jesus go to heaven. What does it mean to follow Jesus in your life? So Jesus tells this rich young ruler to go and, and um, sell everything he owns and then come and follow him. So there was some do in it. And it says the young man went away sad because he had lots of possessions. Bo- bottom line is he wasn't willing to do what it took to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, now when we just read this in Matthew's gospel, we think, oh, may- maybe he's a, he's a little hard, you know, and it seems a little harsh what Jesus is saying, but you know, if we didn't have this commentary in Mark's gospel, it, it, it might feel that way. So I want you to see this again. I want you to turn with me to God, Mark's gospel, chapter 10. Same story recorded, Mark ten twenty one. Are you guys with me? Mark ten twenty one. It says, then Jesus looking at him. You guys are not with me. Mark ten twenty one, And Jesus looking at him. Jesus did what? Jesus loved the rich young ruler. You know what? That changes everything, right? Jesus looked at this young man with compassion and love in his heart. And Mark tells us he, he loved this kid. And he tells him, you know what? Keep the commandments. And the kid said, I've done all that. And the kid said, good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good? Only, only God is good. And, 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 but Mark tells us that Jesus loved this kid. And, and then he tells him, go sell everything you own and come and follow me, knowing the young man was going to struggle. Listen, the young man didn't have an intellectual problem. So many times people say, oh, the, the Bible's this and that, and I don't get it. And, I, you know, and they, they want to make it that they don't intellectually believe in Jesus. has nothing to do with the reality. Nine times out of ten, it's they have many possessions, and those possessions own them. They don't own them. They have many irons in the fire. They have many things in the flesh that they're not willing to give up to become a Christ follower. Now, Turn with me, Will, last place, you guys, almost the last place, and then we're done. Um, back to Matthew, where we started in chapter 8. We should at least read our verse where we're in our own chapter, right? Okay, same type of scenario. It's the last one. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 and 19, starting in verse 19. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Is that a noble thing to say to Jesus? I will follow you wherever you go. Is that a good thing to say? You guys aren't sure. Okay, let me tell you. Yes. Jesus, I will follow you anywhere you go. That's cool. Like, you know, if you, what if you came to me and said, Pastor, I, I'll serve anywhere you want me to serve. I say, great. 
bathrooms need cleaned. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I'm not. Um, I'll say the sidewalks need cleaning. But if you come and you say, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere you want to go. And you're pouring your heart out. And then Jesus said to this dude, hey, man, you can't follow me. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was talking literally. I don't even have a house. I, sl- I sleep out under the stars every night. Are you going to lay your head on a rock next to me? You don't know what it means to follow me. You can't follow me. First night we go out there and sleep and a mosquito bites you on the leg. You're going to want to go home. We, we sleep out in the wilderness. It's cold in the winter. You want to follow me? I don't even have a house. You can't follow me. You haven't counted the cost. You, you don't know what you're asking. But if you knew what you were asking, then, then, then maybe the next guy comes. Verse 21, and another one of his disciples said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me now. Let the dead bury their own dead. Which is it, Jesus? The first guy says, man, I, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, you don't even know what that means. The next guy comes and he says, uh, I, I want to follow you, but not now. And Jesus says, no, right now. The first guy, no, you can't follow me. Second guy, follow me right now. Which is it? What is Jesus saying? Well, the second guy says, well, I, I got to go. I, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. But, but I'll be your disciple after I get some things taken care of in my life. After I get some things squared away. After I have some fun. After I enjoy this part of my life, then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus says, no, it don't work. Follow me now. The guy said, let, let me go bury my dad. You guys are expecting like, you know, like his dad's laying dead in a recliner on the couch and Nacho Libre is on his way over to put a doily on his face and some coins on his eyes and, and perform burial rites. And the guy just wants to go back and, you know, dig a hole and, and, and put his dad in the ground. The guy's dad was not dead yet. Same situation that I explained with Lydia's dad. It was a patriarchal system. He was he worked under his dad's um, family business. And, and one day his family would die and his dad would die and he would then take over. And he says, at that point, then I will, you know, then I'll be in a better position to be able to follow you. And, and, and there was no counting the cost. And he said, I'll follow you at that point. And Jesus said, no, you can't follow me then. Now you just do it now. Let the dead bury their own dead. Let, 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 let the physically dead, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You come and follow me now. Why? Because there's a cost in discipleship. And listen, if we're not honest, you guys, if we don't, if we don't know, and if we haven't counted the cost, and we see it so often, that, that there's this easy believism, or there's this, this fallout among God's people, because they, they go in thinking that, you know, that, that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that it should affect all areas of your life. It just affects what you do on Sunday morning for a couple hours. And then you struggle. But let me tell you what the beauty of the whole thing is. Because didn't Jesus say... That I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly? What does Matthew eleven twenty eight say? It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Listen, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Was Jesus lying? So why on the on all these other occasions that we just read is is Jesus making discipleship so hard? And, and then here he promises that as the disciple of Jesus Christ, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Which is it? You know, the reality is it's Jesus wants you to have. And the beauty of the whole thing is this. God's intention for you is to have an abundant life like Jesus promised. God's promise to you as his disciple is that your burden, that his burden is, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But that's for those who are all in and follow Jesus Christ. You know where people struggle? It's because they don't want to go all in. They, they, they don't want to forsake everything like the 12 apostles did and immediately left to follow Jesus' disciples. And they struggle in the Christian walk. They struggle in their Christianity and they fumble through it. And miss out on God's blessing and intention to, to give you abundant life and to, 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 to make it light and easy. It's, it's the beauty of it is when you will sell out. What did Jesus say? He said, if you'll lose your life, you'll what? You'll find it. And if you, if you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. And so we hang on to parts of our lives that we know are ungodly. 
that we know God doesn't want in our lives. And there's a cost of discipleship. And we don't want to pay that cost because we like these things. And because we hold on these things, we don't get what we want. And God says, listen, if you let go of those things, I'll give you what you want. And we beat our heads against the wall because we go, no, 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 I'm going to hang on to this so I can get that. And you'll never get that as long as you hang on to this. And the beauty of the whole thing, the beauty of God's promise as a disciple is that Jesus said, listen, last thing, I'll try to kind of sum it up with this. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, I want to encourage you with this. Listen, we, we can read that. Did Peter keep all of Jesus' commandments? Did Peter keep all of Jesus' commandments? No way. Peter struggled. You guys watched Peter struggle along with me, right? I mean, to the point where Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Like, there's some bad Christians. And then there's ones that Jesus calls Satan, right? And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And Peter struggled in obedience. And, and, and did that mean that Peter didn't love Jesus? Not at all. Not at all. So, so when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's not saying, if you love me, prove it by doing what I tell you. But it is, a, it is a, a sign of discipleship. Jesus says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. You'll, you'll naturally follow me. You'll naturally, it'll come easy. And so counting the cost, the cost of discipleship is everything. But if you'll jump in with two feet, if you'll jump in with Jesus with both feet, you'll experience the blessing that God intended in your life. And you'll struggle if you haven't counted the cost and you'll be miserable like the Bugatti owner who didn't consider the leather treatments and the oil changes. And when you come to those, you'll be miserable. And so counting the cost that the discipleship is to follow Jesus. And when you do, you're going to experience eternal life. Amen. Let's stand. The last verse in that Bible says in that in that chapter of Matthew says in verse 34, the one I didn't read, it says, and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Why, why did these folks want Jesus to leave? After he cast the pigs into the, the swine, the demons into the pigs, and they ran down the hill. They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, bail. We don't want you. Get out of here. Like, it's bad. We, because it, it would have cost them their businesses. And, it, and, and they, crazy, right, that they would come to Jesus. And rather than, you know, receive the ministry and the love and the power. And, and they, 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 were, they were more interested in their livelihood or their business. And they, they, they told Jesus to get out of here. Don't come around here no more. Sad, sad, sad place for this group of people that, that you know, told Jesus not to come around. Because he intended to give them a life and that more abundantly. And he intended to bless them. And he intended to do amazing things in their life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we're, we're just walking through that message together again. I hope I wasn't preaching at anybody or to anybody that, Lord, together we're, we're reading those verses. And, and Jesus, as we read the, the words in red, there were times when you look at people and you, you said no. And you said, you can't follow me, not because you didn't want them to follow you, not because you didn't love them, but because you realized there was something in their heart that was going to keep them from being successful as a Christ follower. And you wanted to deal with that. You wanted to remove that. You wanted to pull that out of their lives. And so, Lord, for each one of us, as you look into our hearts, into our lives, if there's something in our heart, if there's something in our life, if there's something in our walk that's going to prevent us from bearing fruit, that's going to prevent us from having joy in the Christian life. Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would show us, you would convict us that there would be repentance, that there would be uh, us getting right by you, Lord, that we would deal with those things. And Lord, we wouldn't buy into this sloppy agape and this easy believism and this cheap grace. It cost you absolutely everything. And Lord, for us, we, we have to give everything to obtain it. And so, Lord, we, we, we're, we're blessed to give it. Because, because you have our best interests at hand. And as you reminded us in dealing with the, the rich young ruler that you loved him. And Lord, we know that you love us. You love us infinitely. And you love us like a hurricane. And your love for us is amazing. And so Lord, in that love, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts about anything that, that just needs to be said. Anything in our life that needs to be dealt with. 
anything in our lives, God, that is that you can't use, anything that needs to be um, given back to you or laid at your feet. God, help us as a people to trust you that if we'll give up our life, that we'll, we'll find the joy and the peace and the, the good living that we're hoping for. That Jesus, you have it for us in spades and you have it for us in abundance. And so Lord, help us to lay down those things of our old life and never pick them back up again and become disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that believing is easy. The demons believed in this verse. They knew who you were, but their end was still bad. And there's one thing to believe and there's another thing to follow you and be a disciple as, as, as the disciples were, as they left all immediately and followed you. God, help us to leave all and follow Jesus in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.